on this episode of China Unscripted. If China takes over Taiwan, the world as we know it is over. But is Taiwan prepared for an invasion? And will the U.S. defend Taiwan? Welcome to China Unscripted. I'm Chris Chappell. I'm Shelley Zhang. And I'm Matt Ganesta. And joining us today is Grant Newsham. He's a retired U.S. Marine colonel, and he's a research fellow at the Center for Security Policy. Grant, thanks so much for joining us again. Pleasure to be here. I appreciate it. Well, so things really don't seem to be going so well for Taiwan at the moment. The Chinese Communist Party has been ramping up uh, aggressive acts against the, dare I say, country. And uh, the, the, the most uh, newsworthy of all, definitely, is the, the pineapple ban. Why are they targeting Taiwanese pineapples? Oh, it's sort of um, just one thing that they can use to make life difficult for the Taiwanese. Uh, you know, they're just, it's a full court press uh, that the Chinese are putting on. It's economic, political, uh, military. Uh, and pineapples just happen to be the thing that got their attention. Like a lot of things the, the, the Chinese do, they tend to overplay. So they didn't quite realize that Taiwan was not going to surrender uh, because there was a boycott of their pineapples and that the rest of the world was not going to roll over either, uh, just over pineapples. Yeah, that didn't, that didn't work out so well. What was it, four days and Taiwanese bought the entire year's supply of exports of Taiwanese pineapples? So you're saying the CCP tried to squeeze Taiwan but ended up poking themselves. That was a juicing joke, but you don't really juice pineapples that way. Not with your bare hands. It's but a bad idea. Xi Jinping can. He can He can uh, squeeze the juice from a fresh pineapple. It'll he, be like Mao's mangoes. Exactly. Pineapples. She's pineapples. Okay. Don't criticize she's pineapples. But it's amazing how uh, the international community kind of got together on this. Like all over the world, there was this big push to buy Taiwanese pineapples. Yeah, yeah. You, you see something similar with uh, with Australia when the the Chinese in recent months put the pressure on Australian you know, beef, grain, uh, wine. That everyone around the world decided, well, Australian wine may be pretty good. So it actually has a perverse effect, uh, and it tends to discombobulate the CCP when people don't roll over. Uh, for them and don't doesn't go according to plan. So it's been interesting to see that. Well, it happens so rarely. I kind of I kind of understand why they're surprised <laughs> that people stop rolling over. You yeah. mean? Yeah, that's right. They just haven't paid off the right people. Do you think that now that this whole pineapple backlash has happened, the Chinese Communist Party is going to ramp up that kind of economic pressure on Taiwan, or are they going to kind of back off? Well, they'll keep it up, you know, and this is, you have to look at it in its longer term context, which is that it's, that it's one manifestation of just this onslaught of Chinese pressure against, against Taiwan in this case. And we have a tendency on our side to think once the Chinese have slipped a little bit, to think, oh, it's over, you know, they've learned their lesson, now they're going to behave. But no, it's just, it's incessant. It's next man up, the, the next attack. And it'll, it continues to, to this day. It just happened to be pineapples the other day, but the military pressure, the uh, the, the flight, air, the Air Force flights around Taiwan, the, the Navy pushing, uh, and the constant just subversion uh, around the world to uh, say to have Taiwan's few remaining, uh, uh, the countries that recognize it, have them 
switch allegiance as well. So it, it really is incessant and it's on all, all our fronts. And Taiwan is, as I said, it's just, it's a manifestation of a, a broader Chinese effort, uh, not just directed against Taiwan, but you see it all played out in a very small sort of test case uh, with the Republic of China, Taiwan. So you're saying they might ban imports of Taiwanese bubble tea next? Well, that's, you can bet they've thought about it. You know, it, it uh, I wouldn't put it past them. It's kind of like cutting off the nose to spite the face, though, let's be honest. You know, I've used a uh, comparison sometimes that the Chinese remind me of a, like a fat man at the buffet. You know, he <laughs> sees this new, he's stuffed already, but he sees this tray of eclairs, new tray of eclairs, and he's got to have them all. You know, he just, he can't help himself. And you see that played out in, in the way they deal with other countries. And in Taiwan's case, it's just he's got to, he can't restrain himself, even if he knows it's not good for him. You know, the doctor's telling him, look, you eat more eclairs, you're going to die. He just can't help it. You know, I can sort of appreciate that myself. But at the same time, it, it does characterize Chinese foreign policy and, and behavior uh, more than one might, might think. We, we laugh about it, but it's kind of true. So is there any way to convince them to stop eating eclairs? You've got to make, the, make them, even they will realize, and when I say they, I mean that top level of the Chinese Communist Party that run things, even they realize that there's a point at which they will lose everything. And they'll go right up to it, and they can, kind of can't help themselves, but they presumably know uh, that if they do one thing too many, that is really going to hurt them and they will lose everything. And, and you know, along these lines, one of the interesting things about China's efforts to dominate the world, well, Asia, the US, the world, uh, is that for decades, every, everyone in the Chinese elite and, and China's most successful people have done everything they possibly could to get their money, to get their wealth out of China by hook or by crook, by the most imaginative ways possible, and to put it into places like America, Australia, uh, Canada, the UK. You put it into real estate is one way to do it. And even best of all, you get a, get a relative who can get into one of those places with a residence permit. And I can't think of another country that is, say, a rising, powerful country that is, is resentful and is bent on paying people back where the most successful people are putting their wealth and a family member and setting up bolt holes, sort of escape, escape hatches, in the countries that they hate the most. And one does suggest that there is an awareness at that level uh, that you know, maybe they just might lose everything and they're going to get out with their bid. So it's all that what I've described is like a futures market of sorts where the most successful people in that Chinese communist system don't have enough confidence in the system and its future prospects so that they're moving everything they've got elsewhere. And it's an interesting dynamic. So my, the point of all that is that I think that even at that level of the Chinese Communist Party leadership, that there is an awareness that they could lose everything and they don't want to. And so that's one way of looking at it. But they by the time they get to that point, it can get kind of scary. Now. Well, the interesting thing is that it seems like they just keep like pulling it out at the like they keep 
managing like if you would think that there was ever a time in recent years where it seemed like they could lose everything you'd think about the coronavirus pandemic and how when they let it spread across the world by covering it up like everybody was upset at them many governments were upset at them you'd think that like 2020 would have been a really bad year for them and yet they managed to kind of be like oh well now we are recovering and we're like they've managed to somehow turn it into like a propaganda win for themselves. I thought the coronavirus came from frozen food. Oh, right. Frozen food or German auto parts. You yeah, know? that's what yeah. the WHO the told me. Military. <laughs> something well, something that World Even though the fact said. that we're talking about this shows that like they've managed to like make people talk about this, right? So it's kind of like, are we feeding them eclairs? Like, are we just bringing out the new batches of eclairs for I'm gonna them? I'm going to call this eclair diplomacy from now on. <laughs> because, well, I mean, just think about, Grant, what you were talking about, like people trying to flee, like Communist Party officials or like highly connected people trying to like get their money out of China. But we have these, you know, Wall Street companies like BlackRock, like with websites about how you should invest in Chinese bonds. Like it's just mind blowing. Uh, it is. And what you described is the dynamic where you have the Chinese leadership is not sure enough, so they're trying to get out or hedge their bets. And at the same time, Wall Street, uh, America's financial class, and the, the business class, they're going full speed the other direction, uh, which is, uh, I think, kind of insane. I, I don't understand, but it is how it works. So they, we are, in effect, uh, keeping them afloat. We keep supplying them eclairs, uh, and it's, it doesn't make any sense. But that is the dynamic. But the, you do notice, as you mentioned, with the, uh, the, the, the epidemic, the, the, the virus thing, that you do see how the, the Chinese have, they're incessant, and you've got to hand it to them. These are like gamblers who keep doubling down, and they keep bluffing the other side, and they, they keep at it. And you've got to admire that, uh, that, that sort of nerve. If you've sized up the other people on the side of the table playing poker with you, and you see that they're not very smart, but why wouldn't you run with them? And that is what they've done. One expression that I've heard used about their approach is fake it till you make it. Because uh, they don't have anywhere near the, the resources, the foreign exchange, um, or even a, a system anybody wants to really succeed, but they're acting like they do. They've convinced enough people, uh, BlackRock, et cetera, most of Wall Street, that they do have something. Of course, Wall Street is... Uh, trying to get other people to put their money into China, not their own. Uh, you'll see they don't take payment in Chinese currency either. So uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a strange dynamic, that, but I think we're seeing human nature on display as much as anything. It's really gluttony with Chinese characteristics. But the pineapple ban is really just part of a, a bigger, uh, what's being called gray zone warfare being used against Taiwan. Can you give us an idea of what this kind of gray zone warfare is, because it's not war as I think most Americans really understand it. Mm -hmm. Gray zone has different meanings to depend who you ask, but it's really, it's trying to do things to affect your opponent, to, to bring your opponent down, bring him under your control. But these are things that don't quite reach the level of where the other side's going to say, we have to shoot back. Um, it's just not quite enough. Uh, and it can be things like picking off Taiwan's allies in the South Pacific and creating this isolation. It can be you know, the, the, the constant propaganda uh, directed against 
about Taiwan, the, the bullying, the, the threats that we're going to, if you don't give up, surrender, we're, we just might come and kill you. Uh, you know, that sort of thing. It's, it's not nice, but, it, uh, but it's, it's not enough to counterattack or to fight, to shoot back. You have, and I mentioned earlier, the Chinese aircraft, which uh, come, come close to Taiwan every single day. They go over the informally agreed upon lines that people don't cross. Chinese naval ships as well going around the island, Chinese submarines showing up in places, uh, the, the Chinese doing exercises, amphibious landings throughout uh, the area around Taiwan. And these are all things that are ramping up the pressure, the psychological, physical pressure wearing down Taiwan's military. But if you look at it from Taiwan's perspective or from America's perspective, how do you resist that? You know, how do you fight back? And that's what you, what is most uh, troubling with gray zone activities is that it, it tends to ha handcuff uh, the opponent. If the opponent has, you know, is someone who sort of believes in, in rules, international law, and just civilized behavior, you don't quite know how to respond to it. And, and the, Jap the Chinese have done this very well against the, against the Japanese next door, which is an interesting uh, dynamic because, for, and one classic approach is to uh, send three or four hundred fishing boats into Japanese water around Japanese islands to dare the Japanese to do something about it. Japan is not going to go to war over fishing boats, but they do find that they can't handle it. And they are, it's psychologically demoralizing. Plus, the Chinese are showing them anytime we want, we can do this again. And so that uh, is a pretty good example of the gray zone in its immediate area, overseas, and in the capitals, in the countries that supposedly support Taiwan, they face this kind of pressure as well. So it's, uh, it's a challenge. And it, at some point, I think we're going to wake up and say, tell the, the Chinese, enough's enough, and we are going to shoot back if you overreach. Uh, at some point, it has to come to that. Or we're going to cut you off from the U.S. dollar system. That would work pretty well, too. Yeah, it seems like perhaps um, economic action would be more effective. That's actually something kind of the Trump administration did, because like the Japanese, they don't want to just execute a bunch of civilian Chinese fishermen. But using economic leverage against the Chinese Communist Party, that could be actually pretty effective. Yeah, that, that's right. And, and, and you know, I've said for a while that the, the the solution to the South China Sea probably won't be found in the South China Sea. And the point being that, you know, as I think you've correctly stated, is that trying to match these gray zone activities one for one, or uh, you're going to find yourself running all, all over the place. You're probably going to find yourself outmatched. So you find some other place, some other area where your opponent is particularly vulnerable. And in this case, it is that absolute dependence on foreign exchange, on convertible currencies, the thing that keeps the Chinese Communist Party running, keeps that Chinese economy going, is that foreign exchange, which they have access to, and they get it by selling things overseas, uh, by foreign countries, uh, companies investing into China, and that allows China to have money that they can actually use to pay for things overseas because nobody much wants Chinese currency. So it sort of makes sense if you control that to limit the amount of foreign currency China has access to, it's going to cause 
huge problems with their economy, with their financial system, and ultimately with China's Communist Party control. Uh, and that is something the Trump administration did recognize. Uh, and it's not all that complicated. Um, but you see that applying pressure there, it potentially can cause the, the other side to back off uh, in, against Taiwan in the South China Sea, in the East China Sea as well. It can potentially restrain behavior, but you've got to do it in a way that you have to apply the pressure somewhere where the other guy is really going to feel it and not, as, as you've noted, we've talked about, not try to match them one for one. They send 300 fishing boats, we'll send 301. Or we'll build our Coast Guard into 500,000 people with 1,000 ships. Uh, no, just, as I said, cut off their access to foreign currency, and that'll, that will have a, uh, a real effect. On so from that perspective, do you think that perhaps the freedom of navigation operations the U.S. has been doing maybe aren't the most effective thing that could be done? If that's all we're doing, it's not. Uh, it really has to be backed up by a clear demonstration that we are going to apply pressure uh, everywhere, and particularly where it hurts the most. And once again, that goes to the financial uh, underpinnings of the, the Chinese Communist Party. Because uh, I tend to look at the freedom of navigation exercises, which they have their usefulness if they are part of a larger, coherent uh, strategy. Uh, but otherwise, it's like the old days when in New York City, you remember that before Rudy Giuliani cleaned up Times Square, you know, the NYPD, they could drive a patrol car through Times Square anytime they wanted. And all those criminals running the, the three-card Monty games and trying to you know, steal from you, they would all part and they would go get out of the way and the patrol car would go through and then as soon as it had gone through, the criminals came back, they took over Times Square, and everyone knew who was the boss. And that's what these, some of our efforts in the South China Sea remind me of, is the U.S. 7th Fleet sending a carrier down through the, parting the waves, parting the waters. The Chinese are hovering around the edges, but they don't stop it, and they let it go. And then, and we get a lot of good photo opportunities, and then it goes, it's gone, and then it closes back up, and all the, the Chinese Navy and Coast Guard, they're back on station, and it's as if the Americans were never there. So as I said, it has to be more than just that, and it's a part of a larger uh, effort to, to effectively apply pressure. But this isn't going to intimidate uh, the Chinese for very long, incisively. Now, the U.S. is kind of in a unique position to be able to put financial pressure on China specifically uh, on the Chinese Communist Party because of the fact that the U.S. dollar is like the world reserve currency. But what could a country like Taiwan do to put pressure on, on China? Well, Taiwan, it does need to, you know, Taiwan's security ultimately tracked back to the United States uh, to the extent that America is willing to fully defend Taiwan, uh, to include fighting over it if necessary, to the extent they have that support, then they've got a chance. But as I say, it all tracks back to America. But there are things Taiwan can do to sort of improve, it, improve its odds. And looking at just from the defense perspective, uh, that it needs to make its military, its defense capabilities more effective than they have been. Uh, that's sort of a given. Because uh, it has allowed its defenses to really weaken and lapse uh, in a, to a dangerous extent, 
which is, is troubling. Uh, and that was, was for a long time a sense that, well, there's nothing much to worry about. Uh, you know, we've got the advantage. Amphibious attacks are hard, so China probably won't do it. And even a sense, an odd sense, well, the Americans will always be there. But also there was a sense, well, you know, there's really nothing we, should, we can do in some quarters. Almost a sense, well, there's nothing much we can do against China, so why even bother? So you have these different reasoning. Uh, for allowing the Taiwan's defenses to lapse. Uh, and, and what they need to do is to start, one, you have to have the right hardware, uh, which is which is available, but you've got to have hardware. Uh, you have to have the right concepts of operation, which means employ your troops, your forces in the right way. And you also have to um, pay attention to the people who actually serve in the Taiwanese military. That is the one of maybe the thing they need to start with. Actually, is the the people in Taiwan's armed forces because they're they're treated very badly. Actually, they they salaries are low, terms of service are horrible. Uh, there's nothing like a GI Bill. There's really no long-term benefits, educational, housing, medical, etc. Pension-wise, their pensions have gotten cut. In fact, so terms of service are terrible. If you applied the Taiwan military's terms of service to the U.S., you could probably reduce the size of U.S. forces by about two-thirds in an afternoon because they're that bad. So as a result, the Taiwan military doesn't attract enough recruits. Uh, it's, it's demoralized to some extent, but it's just amazing it's as professional as it really as it is, given that the people who do serve, the people who have stuck around are just fine people. These are real patriots. When you, you saw that, you saw how they're treated. The fact they've stayed around and they are as, as good as they are, that tells you something. The other, another follow-on of this is that because the U.S. in particular, and no one else really, will do much, will do anything, will do anything of note with the Taiwanese military, for example, no joint training, uh, that's the big thing. You know, they, they just won't do anything, we don't train together. Taiwan is the equivalent of a the military, is the equivalent of, say, a baseball team, but that only plays inter-squad games. It never plays another team. Um, and it doesn't get good coaching from anywhere. Uh, so that's been going on for 40 years. And it's something of a Galapagos situation where the, uh, speaking for the Marines, for example, if you go visit a Taiwan Marine facility, it looks like an American Marine base in about 1979. Uh, so as a result, the, the way the military, just a 40 years of near isolation the military is not developed uh, in terms of uh, particularly operational capabilities the way it should. So it still uh, is more, it's a lot, it's set up in a really conventional way where you're going to have use heavy artillery, destroyers are going to be sallying out to challenge the enemy, going to defend from fixed positions. So the thinking isn't, uh, is a little outdated. They do recognize they need to change, but making those those changes to make yourself into a more mobile, harder to locate force uh, is, it, it's a challenge. It is for anybody, but it is no, nonetheless, it's no less of a challenge in Taiwan. But, and you see, I've gotten to the hardware part last. The way hardware is something that does give Taiwan a good, some good uh, prospects uh, for defending themselves because you do have long range precision weapons. That's a way of saying that you can shoot a missile a really long way and you can hit what you aim at. And that means, and the, the nature of the 
potential battlefield over Taiwan uh, is, is so short that Taiwanese missiles could reach across the, uh, the Taiwan Strait and crack Chinese ships in half. So you do have the weaponry, the, the uh, anti-ship cruise missiles, the smart sea mines that can swim across the strait, go on the bottom, wait for the certain ship to come by, come up and destroy it. Uh, this technology is very good uh, as well. Anti-aircraft systems have gotten a lot better as well. The multiple launch rocket systems, pretty much flood an attacking force with these a lot of missiles at one time cyber capabilities, electronic warfare. These are all things that a place like Taiwan can use to make itself a tough nut to crack. And the, 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 um, what make itself a porcupine. That's the expression that's used. A pineapple. <laughs> yeah, well, that'll do. So, but that's the, you know, so trying to give you some, some sense of things, the white right weaponry, you have to make service in the Taiwan military attractive profession. So you have a serious, uh, capable force that um, is you know, can fight and, uh, and do it well. And additionally, your concepts of operations. One way to look at it, that I'd like to think of is, you know, look at it as sort of a Switzerland. You'll notice that nobody attacks Switzerland because it's just too much trouble. And they have a very good military, very good reserve system. And but I'd say not just Switzerland, but with a touch of Hezbollah. And by that, I mean, in 2006, when Israel attacked Lebanon, Hezbollah defeated that. And what you do, and what they did is they, they looked at it and said, well, if, if we were the Israelis, what would we least like to fight? Well, you'd least like to fight an enemy that you can't see and that can hit you with weapons, accurate weapons, precision weapons that can destroy your tanks, destroy your ships, your aircraft, whatever. And it, it, that will discombobulate any, any attacker. Uh, so it is that say Switzerland with a touch of Hezbollah is what you want uh, to make yourself, if you're Taiwan, to make it so the cost to Taiwan is just so, uh, to China, if it should assault, is just too much trouble. Uh, and, but to do that, you do have, the, have to have the Americans backing you, also the Americans providing you with the right, or access to the right sorts of uh, equipment as well. Um, but what, what one thing about when you look at Taiwan's defense, that a lot of people look at it uh, from their own, the first thing that comes to mind. So some people will say, they will imagine Iwo Jima, this huge Chinese amphibious force coming ashore, aircraft and missiles, etc., coming in. And that's what they envision. Others will look at it as the China continuing this constant pressure, uh, this wearing down of Taiwan isolating it to the point Taiwan is subverted and that you get China, uh, Taiwanese Quislings, uh, these pro-Chinese Taiwanese who often on the payroll, have them use their influence, get some political support for reaching a deal with China. And that's where you avoid the need to fight. And so that's another way it could happen, or it could happen uh, with a, a very short, a very quick sort of um, coup de main, where Chinese special forces and agents already in place seize airfields and ports, use that to bring in a lot of troops very quickly, while at the same time you shut down the electricity, the, the computers, every, the communications on Taiwan, and you've used that cover to for, take a very quick assault and take, it, uh, take the place. Uh, and you've also cut off the, the leadership, either killed them or isolated them. And in, all, and in, these, in those cases, 
you tell the Americans, stand back. This isn't your fight. Stay out of it. And you threaten nuclear weapons. And that will probably be part of the equation. So you can imagine an American administration uh, potentially very quickly thinking up reasons why it isn't going to war over Taiwan. Uh, and that's so it's, it's a complicated uh, equation, but there's several different ways to look at it. Well, so I got to ask, China has been very clear about its intention to invade and reunify Taiwan. Unify, it, don't use there. Oh, yeah, unify. Well, well, anyways, why, if that's the case, why is the Taiwanese military lacking so much? Why aren't they putting more effort into creating a strong fighting force? Why are the soldiers treated so poorly? You know, I think it's in some ways human nature uh, that you just can't bring yourself to do what you should do. You know, there's not many votes to be gained if you're a politician from making your thing be the need to improve Taiwan's military, to treat its uh, service people well, to, to make it a respected profession. You know, no one's, people aren't, they don't see that as something that uh, is going to get them reelected. But social spending, that'll get you things. Um, and, you know, so it's kind of like you don't want to eat the vegetables, but you want to eat the eclairs and you want to pass eclairs around. And nobody's going to, you know, you could hand out Brussels sprouts and broccoli on the street and nobody's not going to get many takers, but pass out eclairs that somebody else is paying for. And you're going to get support for that. And it's a little blip, but they, but it's a defense is not, something that politicians see as something they need to, uh, that they're going to make a name for themselves. There are some who do uh, and realize that there is a need to improve, just to improve things uh, or else. Um, and as I noted, for a number of years, there was a sense that Taiwan had the advantage. You know, defense wasn't really something to worry about. And that somehow a deal would be cut with China. China wasn't going to do much, and it really couldn't even if it wanted to. But that balance really has changed in the other direction. Uh, and nobody, people haven't responded to it as quickly as they, they can, as, as they, they should have. Uh, the Americans haven't really helped, in my opinion. Uh, the, because, as I mentioned, we, we really won't deal with the Taiwanese military. But we did, Americans do come and visit, and they may send little training teams, but that really doesn't amount to much. Well, why can't we do joint military exercises with Taiwan? China would get angry. Huh. Uh, okay, but, well, but why can't we do it? Because China would get angry. Don't you reckon? No, I, I'm being, not being funny, because I it, uh, that's about the argument. It, 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 um, you know, and if we do, you know, who knows what? Taiwan might attack China. Now, you've heard just about every dumb explanation for why not to do this. But it was ultimately, though, it is the, the thinking was and was for a long time and still is that it's too provocative. And you think of all the other things we don't do, uh, have not done against China, that we've allowed China to get away with because it's provocative. Well, you see that when it comes to the uh, U.S. military's dealings with the Taiwan military. This is despite the fact that since at least 2016 or 17, the U.S. National Defense Authorization Act that the Congress passes has called for doing joint training with the Taiwan military. Um, but as I heard it described by a um, uh, sort of a Washington insider uh, in, who was visiting Taiwan of all places, 
he just he pointed out to the Taiwanese audience that well that's just a sense of Congress, the State Department, Department of Defense, the White House. They don't have to do anything if they don't want to because you don't understand. It's just a sense of Congress. Uh, well, I suppose, but but that is the, the thinking. Uh, and there's different ways to go about this. Is that it doesn't mean send the first Marine Division to Taiwan to do large-scale exercises. You know, one approach that some of the people have been pushing uh, for a long time is to use HADR, Humanitarian Assistance Disaster Relief, uh, as your focus, and to have the Taiwanese Navy and Marine Amphibious Force cooperate with the American Amphibious Forces, go to Guam uh, and train for HADR, set up a, a headquarters in Taiwan, in fact, where Americans and Taiwan military and civilians could plan disaster relief operations for Taiwan in the region where they happen all the time, do the training and the, the planning necessary for that, go out and practice it, and when they actually happen, go do it. Uh, now, only the most churlish people would complain about militaries that go out to save lives. Um, I think we can no shortage of churlish people, but this is it's an, one example of how you can actually bring Taiwan out of their isolation. And think of the psychological effect this would have on the Taiwan military, beyond the improved operational capabilities on both sides. But it would knowing that you have some friends often makes a big difference. Think of how that would uh, affect the Taiwan public writ large, this realization that somebody actually gives two roots about them. So, so those would be some of the benefits of it. That's one way to go about it. Um, but otherwise, the, the way it is, if you're not going to actually train with your best, you know, with your friends, it's a, I've used this expression in person. It's like, say you've got a girlfriend and you tell her, no, I love you, baby. You know, you're the tops. But do you mind if you don't see me in public? And if you see me, just pretend you don't know me. I use that line all the time. <laughs> yeah, I, I know. It's, it's, it's hard. You have to, hard to pull off uh, successfully. But, and then you tell her, you know, but I really love you. But there's this other gal, this other day. And, uh, I mean, she's scary. But she gives me a lot of money. Um, but, you know, she, she scares me. I don't want to get her mad. And if she sees you with me, she might take a swing at you. Um, but, but I tell you, baby, I love you. Swear to God. Um, you, your girlfriend or your, is not going to be all that convinced that you're that serious. And that's what we've sort of been trying to do uh, with the Taiwanese is tell them, yeah, yeah, we, we've got your back. Don't worry. But you don't mind if we don't actually come and play baseball with you, do you? Because somebody might get mad. Um, now, we've talked about the military angle, which is part of it. But there's also the economic part, too, uh, is as important. And because uh, the Taiwan Taiwan's economy, it took a languished for about 20 years, and it's picking up a bit now. Um, but we should also look at the economic part of this uh, as a, a necessary sort of support to Taiwan. Um, you know, figure out what it is we, do, we can do to get the Taiwanese economy to hum and make those concessions. Give them the advantages that you need. Uh, and don't get hung up on the fact that they, we can't import American beef or pork or whatever. Uh, or that we've gotten uh, hung up on some issues that uh, miss the bigger picture. Uh, so the economic angle is one that you also have to pay attention to. And also just the, the, the political support. You know, when 
the Solomon Islands and, and Kiribati in the Pacific when they switched over to China in 2019. That tells you that somebody in America, in Australia or New Zealand didn't do their jobs. Um, but so it's this broader political support and, and do what's necessary to break Taiwan out of its out of its isolation, not just military, but get it into international organizations. Uh, and if the, you know, the, that, the girl across the street doesn't like it, well, okay, then People's Bank of China, because you've been doing business with North Korea, you can no longer deal in U.S. dollars. Take your pick. Uh, but you're going to have to apply pressure if you're going to help China, uh, help Taiwan, sort of get out of this stranglehold that the Chinese are trying to put in, over it. Grant, you have some great analogies, I have to say. That's that's definitely true. Yeah. The two things that you mentioned, the economic support and the, the military support, uh, are when we were in Taiwan last January um, and talking to, to legislators, Taiwanese legislators, Taiwanese people, those were the two big things that they said they wanted from the U.S. is, is greater cooperation on those two fronts. And when you mentioned the humanitarian system, assistance training, we do that training with the PLA. So, you know, why can't we do it with the Taiwan military? Yeah, I mean, we just, we should do it. And then when the Chinese Communist Party complains, we just gaslight them. Like, no, there's nothing to do with the military. It's just humanitarian assistance. And what can they say? Well, they will, of course, complain. But at some point, you have to, you got to just say no. And if you don't like it, you know, we're waiting. But at some point, you know, but if you keep expecting that the other side to suddenly behave nicely, it's never going to happen in this case. Um, but you, with Taiwan, in Taiwan's case, there's a couple things that are worth also mentioning. And one is if, and when you were there, I'm sure I'll bet that you didn't get any sense of sort of civil defense, you know, the sort of the, the public being really geared for an attack or doing the evacuation drills knowing where the places to go were, having, even citizens having their own roles in the case of emergency. Um, they do have it for like when there's hurricane, typhoons, um, floods, but they don't have it for the minutes for the public at large. Mm. And what that does is it tends to make the public think, well, either nothing's going to happen or it's somebody else is going to take care of it, but you haven't brought the public into the, sort of into the game. And that's something that does need a lot of attention. Um, also, the the reserve system, the military reserve system in Taiwan, if, if you said, Nushim, we'll give you a million bucks if you can say something good about it, uh, I, I could probably think of something, but it wouldn't be heartfelt. Their reserve system is terrible, uh, and there is no nice way to put it. You know, they'll bring reservists on duty for a few days a year, they just sit around and they go back to wherever they came from. Um, and but that needs attention fast. You know, one of the reasons Switzerland is so successful is because it has a, a very good system of military reserves where they're well-trained, they know how to use their weapons, they know how to operate and fight. Taiwan doesn't have that. It's been allowed to lapse over the last 20 years or so. And but that needs fixed right away. And what you would do is you would take about, start small, take about 10,000 people, reservists, who want to train up to a full capability and concentrate on them, and then once that's done, aim for another 10, et cetera, et cetera. But all this takes is the will, it's not complicated, it takes the will to do it. Um, it would be nice if they 
you know, if they could bring Americans in to help them with the with the effort and help them with a lot of things, you know, and think of the psychological effect of having you know foreigners around to, to help you out. Uh, that's but the reserves really need need some attention. And once again, that is a problem with the the political class uh, in Taiwan that has allowed this to lapse. Is the reserve system you're talking about, is that the conscription system where they are conscripted for four months or is that different? No, the conscription system, that that too has some problems because service in the Taiwan military, it's it's either an act of of love or patriotism or or duty or, uh, but it's not something you would do like in America, you join to, to pay for college. Or get your, you know, it just isn't seen as something that society needs to really reward the way and recognize the way it should, and that needs a complete different mindset. Um, but no, the reserves are like in America, where you have people who don't, they don't go on active duty, but they serve, you know, two weeks a month or a weekend a month, two weeks a year, etc. And in the event of contingencies, they come for years at a time, so they're like civilian soldiers, but. In the U.S., it's um, particularly in some of the reserve uh, systems, it's it's very good where you do have people who actually enjoy the reserve work more than their real jobs. So they try to train up and be as capable as active duty people. So you've got this, say, 300,000 roughly active duty Taiwan military. And then you've got on paper like a million reservists. Um, But the reservists are... On, you know, they're there and they do a little bit, but they're really, they're not a full force that at all deserves being taken seriously. That needs fixed. You know, put yourself in the position of an attacker. Now, you, you get, if somehow you get ashore, would you rather face a million guys who fired four rounds a year and can barely read a map? Or would you rather face 10,000 of these, you know, Hezbollah types, these very well-trained troops that you can't see that are popping up everywhere? And that'll, you know, that'll, that'll kill you. You know, you'd rather go after the dispirited, poorly trained reservists. Um, and it just came to mind before I want to fit it in before I forget is the as an example of how the Taiwanese mindset in its defense needs to be changed uh, is the Taiwan Marine Corps. And you know, not surprisingly, I'm going to speak about it, but the. Uh, but you have the Taiwan Marines. They do remind you of the U.S. Marines in about 1979. Uh, so what has been required, and that's kind of how they, they fight. Not quite, but it's they have not advanced as they should have. But they, they're still psychologically and in terms of capability and the, the ethos, they're just like the American Marines. Uh, very, very good troops, but they haven't had the occasion, the, the, the chance to learn to develop the, the most uh, modern capabilities. But, so what you would do is to take the Taiwan Marine Corps and say, okay, forget the 1979 version. We're going to turn you into a, a highly mobile emergency counterattack force that you can deploy from one end of, of uh, Taiwan to the other. And we're going to make you the guys who specialize in ur- urban combat. Because the fight, a fight in Taiwan will involve a lot of that. The Taiwan Marines already are good at it. And we're going to make you into uh, the guys who use um, anti-ship cruise missiles. These are, these are mobile. You can move them around. Very hard to find. Uh, but use the Marines as a sort of this, you know, to, for that uh, purpose as well. You're going to be a mobile anti-aircraft uh, unit as well. 
you may even get into mine warfare, the way smart mines work. The Marines are good at littoral combat in the coastal areas. Uh, we're going to use you for that purpose, in addition to your amphibious reconnaissance duties as well. But the point is, you, you're using, instead of a very kind of heavy fixed force, you're using it to a very mobile one that you can't find if you're an enemy. You can't target it, but they're hitting you from 100 miles away. They're cracking your ships in half. Uh, their artillery using smart munitions are hitting exactly what they're they're at they're they're aiming at, um, and the Taiwanese air the Chinese air force comes ashore it comes overhead and they can't you know they're getting hit and they can't see where this is coming from, um, but that's an idea of how you would change your mindset your concept of employment, and there's plenty of Taiwanese officers who understand this, but it's really at that top level I'm afraid in their military where they haven't. I just haven't been able to figure it out. And the term, one of the other things that has happened that's hurt the Taiwan military is the, you know, that a lot of the good officers, younger ones, who would be excellent generals, left over the last six, seven years because they saw their pensions were going to disappear. The terms of service were just too bad and they had no future. That was a, that was a catastrophe. A lot of them have stayed and the quality is still very good, but it is a, it's a problem. That's, you know, trying to give some specific uh, details of the, the problems they face and also how you fix it. Uh, so the, when I first started doing things with Taiwan you know, years ago, there was about 16,000 Taiwan Marines. Now there's about seven or 8,000. Uh, now, if you're an attacking force, what would you rather face, Marines or reservists who shoot four rounds a year and can't read a map? Uh, they, you can see where the, there's opportunities, but the Taiwanese have to take advantage of them quickly, and we need to help them. How likely is it China will invade Taiwan? I think they will. Um, I think they will, pref if they can't get it uh, by bullying, by just wearing Taiwan down, isolating Taiwan to the point it feels like it has no choice that the American support and any other foreign support is so uncertain or unlikely that Taiwan just gives up. That could, could happen. But if I, I'm afraid that if Taiwan does not surrender, that I, I would take Xi Jinping and the Chinese Communist Party and the, the, these people who spew venom against Taiwan as a profession, I would take them seriously. You know, I don't think anyone should underestimate uh, what underestimate the, the PRC um, or discount what they say. Now, they often tell us exactly what they're going to do. We just choose not to believe them. Um, and for a long time on the U.S. side, there was a sort of a condescension that the, the Chinese just aren't smart enough or good enough to be able to conduct this kind of an assault. Well, look at what they did to Hainan in 1949, and you're impressed, but that that's an aside. But but no, the Chinese are incredibly capable and they're quick learners. They've developed military capabilities that most U.S. experts said they would not have for another couple decades. Uh, so the, the, I think they, when they say they're going to attack Taiwan, if they don't get it some other way, I would take them at their word and be ready to uh, deal with it. And ideally make it clear that once again, you will lose everything, uh, not to mention a lot of only children. Uh, if you do, and you will lose your condos in Manhattan and your bank accounts and your green cards as well. Uh, but you have to make that very clear. But I would take China at its word. 
on this. And, and I, I do want to stress that that condescension that you've seen from the U.S. side towards the Chinese uh, has been, a, I think, a notable feature of U.S. policy for many years by people who should know better. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's late in the day, but the, the game's not over. So there's a lot of people in the U.S. who say, well, should we really put you know, our relationship with China at risk? Should we really put our soldiers at risk to defend a small, sweet potato-shaped island in the Pacific? Why bother? So what, are the, uh, what would be the larger and long-term geopolitical consequences of not defending Taiwan uh, in the event of an actual military invasion from the People's Liberation Army? You know, and that gets to the, I think, the heart of it. Um, beyond the the, the, just the the decency of prevent of keeping twenty four free twenty four million free people free, you know, who don't want to be enslaved by a communist system, there is something to be said just on the principle alone for defending Taiwan. Uh, and to me, that would be enough. Um, I don't think it would be for Wall Street and a lot of um, others, but for me, and a lot of people, that is enough. Um, but what you've gotten at is the it offers two other very good reasons for uh, bolstering Taiwan, uh, Taiwan's defense. And first is the military geography. Taiwan's got what real estate agents say is most important, and that's location, location, location. Um, get out the map, and and that's an easy way to understand what's going on. Uh, because China, if you look out from China, outwards, you see the string of islands from Japan down to down to, to Taiwan, to the Philippines, it goes down to Indonesian Malaysia. And you look at it, and it's a barrier. And this so-called first island chain actually pre prevents easy, ready access to the Pacific for the Chinese military. To get there, you have to go through some narrow straits that are easily closed off. Um, so China sees the first island chain as this barrier that prohibits it from operating as it would like uh, in the Pacific and beyond. But if you can take Taiwan, you have you've broken the barrier. It's like the walls of Constantinople being breached in 1453, or Castle's walls being breached. But suddenly they, you can pour through, and that is something that looks very good from a Chinese perspective, from on a defender's perspective, from an American perspective, that doesn't look so good at all, because suddenly you've, your defenses have been breached, and now the enemy can operate uh, well beyond the, those, those areas, and you've got a fight on your hands in more places than you thought they, you would have that. And so the geography alone is a reason why you, you have to defend Taiwan. Um, additionally, if you, if you think through the, uh, the political effects of Taiwan, Taiwan being uh, taken over by China, either by coercion or force. Think of the message that sends to, just in, just in Asia, don't even think about the rest of the world yet. It, what does it tell them? It tells them that the United States could not prevent China from taking Taiwan and 24 million free people. The U.S. military couldn't prevent it. U.S. economic and financial pressure couldn't stop it. And uh, U.S. nuclear weapons didn't have any effect either. So if you're another country in Asia, what are you going to do? I say, oh, never mind. The Americans will—they'll take care of things somehow. No, your confidence in U.S. promises 
in U.S. capabilities is just it's going to be shattered. And what you will find uh, is the that most of Asia at that point would start leading towards China. I, I've used that as the expression. Asia would at least go pink, and you would see you would see from North to South Korea. I think get closer to China, farther from us. The alliance would would really be be wrecked. It would be in ser very serious shape. But the time that South the current South Korean government would be just looking for an excuse to go closer to China and North Korea, so they wouldn't complain. But even a conservative government would have to uh, sort of hedge its bets at best. Uh, Philippines that would in China's lap. Uh, Cambodia already is. Laos, Thailand closer to China. Malaysia wouldn't have many options. Indonesia would have to at least stay farther away from us. Uh, and you have um, you know, the one, Vietnam wouldn't like it, and they would carve out some space, but they wouldn't be able to do much. Uh, and Singapore, you know, the one that everyone thinks is pro-American, you know, they're already sort of wavering. But loose Taiwan, and with all the, the, the psychological blow that that would be to confidence in the U.S., I think even Singapore would get a lot closer to China. So America would find itself left probably with Japan, though the Japanese would not be very happy about what happened, but they would, I think, stick with us, and Australia. And so the U.S. would find itself in a position of having to cobble together a defense line from Japan down through the Central Pacific, where the, the nations there would be getting kind of jumpy, uh, and, and then down to Australia. And America would find it very hard to operate west of that, you know, into the, into the South China Sea. You could do it, but at Chinese sufferance. So the political effects of that often doesn't get thought of. Uh, um, most of the, a lot of the discussion about Taiwan looks at the before and during. Uh, China attack, and they do it? How would they do it? And they succeed, not so much on the on what happens afterwards. And the political effects would be serious. The global economic effects uh, immediately, just instantly, uh, would be devastating as well. So there's a lot to that little island that we often doesn't get the attention to search. So basically in this sort of global battle that's happening right now between liberal democracies and uh, Communist Party authoritarianism, it's all kind of riding on Taiwan. If they, If China takes Taiwan... That's sort of China becoming a superpower while the United States takes a major step back. Yeah, you know, I don't know how else to put it. You know, the, the American ability to defend free people and to defend its position and its interests in the Asia region would be just to be demolished. Uh, and people would look at it that way, too. And you know, you'd see, they'd see that in Africa, Latin America. Uh, Central Asia, Europe, the Europeans as well. This would be such a blow to the to the, to America. It'd be very hard. I think it'd be a real challenge to recover from. So it is that small piece of terrain, you know, like Czechoslovakia in 1938, 39 was just a, a faraway country about which we knew little. Well, sort of paraphrase Mr. Chamberlain, but these little places often have a much bigger effect and. Czechoslovakia didn't have the advantage of strategic geography, but Taiwan is, meets the, is the classic definition uh, of it. Do you think uh, the Joe Biden administration would come to Taiwan's defense? You know, I don't know. You know, I hope they would. 
And, you know, it's still early and, you know, you want to give every administration a chance. You you will notice that even the Trump administration didn't take advantage of the opportunity to do some joint training with the Taiwan military. But just since there may be nitpickers watching, in 2017, uh, Taiwan Marine Platoon came to Hawaii, did some training with the Marines and had a good, it went very well. But nothing more was done after that, and World War III did not start as a result. So I just threw that in. But otherwise, that the uh, adva- the opportunities to do joint training, they were not taking advantage of, as I saw. Um, but the Biden administration, um, I don't know. I think within the Biden administration, there are people uh, who do understand Taiwan's importance very well. Uh, but there's a range of thinking in any administration. In the Biden group, there are those who see the relationship with Taiwan as the more important one, or with China, as the more important one for the Americans. And Taiwan is just an irritant, a disposable irritant, that it would be nice if it went away, or we or hope the Chinese show restraint uh, and don't do too much to support Taiwan because China will get angry. So you have the range of a range of thinking, and you've also got Wall Street and the American business class, uh, which is just keen to get into, into the PRC. Uh, so that's part of the dynamic as well. And the Trump administration had to deal with that too, where it, you know, Wall Street and the business class's pressure is, is immense, and uh, it's not necessarily pro-Taiwan. So I think that the Biden administration understands, I think, the significance of Taiwan, but whether the administration, or better said, the people in it who understand Taiwan's importance are able to determine policy. Uh, I don't know. You know, I, you know, one always hopes, but the, at this point, it's a coin toss uh, to my way of thinking. That's reassuring. <laughs> you know, then again, you know, I, I expect the Washington football team is going to win the Super Bowl every September. <laughs> and, uh, it hasn't for the last 20-some years, so I could be wrong. And sometimes administrations surprise you. Sometimes circumstances develop in a way that they're forced to do things they, they wouldn't have done a year earlier. And you know, we'll find out. But th- this is definitely... Um, uh, this is... This is difficult times, and This isn't something, a problem that you can push off uh, for a few more years, but rather this we are really facing. We're going to make some tough decisions uh, very quickly. And the ones that you, and if you don't make the right ones now, you're going to pay for it a few years later. And so it is, uh, I don't really can't, I don't think I can overstate that. Well, I have a couple questions. One is, when we were talking about the, the training part, like why the U.S. military doesn't do joint training with Taiwan, the Taiwan Relations Act says we like we are required by law to ensure that Taiwan has enough defensive capabilities to defend themselves. Is that just interpreted as only being about selling them like hardware weapons? Like the training part doesn't apply when it comes to that that law? Oh, if you want, you could interpret that any way you want it. If you any even a bad lawyer could figure out how to justify using the Taiwan Relations Act to do joint training with the Taiwan military. The only reason we don't is because we don't want to. And, and China will, won't like it. That is the only reason. There's no legal prohibition. In fact, I would suggest that the, the, the sense of the Senate, ought, or the Congress, really ought to have some weight 
on administration. It does say what the major, vast majority of America's elected representatives say America should do with Taiwan. Uh, that ought to have some, some value. But it has been it's a decision, I think, that's been made by a fairly small number of people uh, in the State Department, Department of Defense, if I had to guess, and probably correctly, who have prevented this from happening for, uh, well, to date. Uh, and it's, uh, if you aren't going to break that isolation, you know, why would you expect a positive outcome uh, a few years down the road? And Okay, and this is kind of related, is the idea has been for a long time that the U.S. Uh, government should maintain this type of strategic ambiguity towards like what its intentions are towards defending Taiwan. Uh, like, we're just not going to say whether we're going to come to their defense. So then China will be, the Chinese Communist Party will be uh, deterred by the fact that we're just not going to spell it out for them. What do you think about the strategic ambiguity thing? Well, it worked well um, while the Chinese military wasn't very good. Uh, but now that China has built up a military that will give the U.S. a run for its money and then some not to mention a bloody nose and a couple of black eyes in certain circumstances. China may not care. You know, they, they may not care. Okay, we don't even care if you aren't ambiguous. Uh, China, the Chinese military and the military imbalance in uh, that region around Taiwan and East Asia, or nearer to China, has gotten so, so out of whack that China just might feel like it, you know, it has the capability to do what it wants, and it and, def and defy the Americans to do something about it. So while that was, a, it's a, if you hear that expression, and it comes from something that Professor Joseph Nye said when he was in government in the mid-90s, when he, the Chinese asked him, well, what would you do for Taiwan? And he says, it depends. Now, that's a, a, a really clever response. You know, to American ears, it sounds, you know, it's the American, you know, the snide American. Just, you know, saying something that sounds good. But to the Chinese, you know, they may hear it very differently as well. Hmm, it depends means maybe not. And but now that I say the military imbalance, the economic uh, balance has changed so much from 20, 25 years ago that I don't think that it depends or strategic ambiguity is all that important at this point. Um, you do need. But also, if you're going to be clear about it strategic certainty or clarity, whatever you call it, you better be able to live up to your promises. Uh, and that is part of the game as well. Uh, so what I, I think part of this is, as we talked about earlier, is you have to make it clear to the Chinese Communist Party leadership, that top layer, um, who is willing to let the Chinese people absorb any amount of punishment, and make it clear to them personally that they will pay for this and that they will lose everything. Um, so it's a choice. Do you want to spend your golden years in Manhattan or the Gold Coast of uh, Australia? Or do you want to sort of live it huddling in a cave in, in China? You know, yeah, you may destroy the world and cause a lot of damage in the process. But you have to make it clear to them that, that they will lose everything. And, you know, and there's an element of poker playing in this that when you think the other guy on the table isn't bluffing, you're, you're going to act a very different way and vice versa. Uh, so, but it, it, I'm not so sure that the Chinese side is fully convinced that the Americans are not bluffing, but it needs to be, that needs to be gotten across very clearly 
uh, to my way of thinking. After care, but you do have to understand the importance of Taiwan uh, to not just the United States, but I would say the entire civilized world. I mean, it's rare that a small piece of terrain has such outsized effects, but I think Taiwan uh, is such a case. Do you think the Tsai Ing-wen administration is aware of, did you think that they're changing, trying to change the military culture? Is, is there movement in that direction? Not enough. Uh, I think there's more awareness than there's been, but you just haven't seen the, the concrete effects. Uh, but, uh, that's, and we could help it along, you know, if America was willing to get more directly involved in it. Um, it's I com I compared a little bit to trying to cut entitlement spending in America. Like everybody knows it needs to happen, uh, but nobody can bring themselves to do it. And that's sort of what you're, you're seeing on display in, in Taiwan is that there's, there's more of an understanding than there's ever been in recent times. But to actually bring about the change is always, always the challenge. You, know, the, you can always think of something more immediate, more urgent, that'll get you some votes too. Uh, but so that means either you, we address it now or the, I think it will, there'll be a pretty unhappy ending would be my guess. Well, Grant, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, Taiwan really is the most important country in the world right now. And it's barely even a country. I'm with you. It, uh, if you go, well, you've been there. You've all been there. If you go there, and it's just the friendliest people, it's the most cheerful people uh, on earth. I think if you can imagine, if they, you know, you consider the threat that they face, the, the, the cheerfulness, the smiles that you get really are something. One last anecdote, the, uh, you know, just when I was there in 2019, I was there looking at a map outside a subway because I was lost. And a young woman came up to me and she asked if she could help. And, you know, I, yeah, and she, so she, you know, said, well, it's close by, I'll, I'll, I'll take you there. And as we walked along, she said, well, you know, where, where are you from? And I said, well, America. I, unfortunately, I couldn't say Texas. I've always wanted to be from Texas, but I'm not. So I just said America. And she says, please don't let us be part of China. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. and I, you know, you almost wanted to cry. But, you know, I said, you know, we'll do our best. And, you know, I hope I never meet her, have to meet her someday and say, you know, little sister, some of us knew and some of us tried. I think what she said was pretty typical, I think, Taiwanese thinking. And it's what free people anywhere would, would say when, when they're confronted with a face-to-face -face with an American. Uh, so I hope we get the answer right uh, for Taiwan. Yeah, definitely any Americans watching, like we need to make it very clear to our elected officials that support for Taiwan is not negotiable. We shall defend them to the last pineapple. <laughs> if you've had the pineapples, it's well worth telling. <laughs> All right, Grant, that's a good note to end on. Thank you again for joining us. Thank you, I appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Take care. Yeah, I don't think people realize how important Taiwan is. I feel like, you know, we realize more than most people, but still to hear what Grant said about, you know, what the consequences of China's takeover of Taiwan in terms of like how much of the Pacific they'd be able to control and all this stuff. And the fall of all of Asia, pretty much. Yeah, the whole Asia would turn pink thing is kind of alarming. Yeah. Well, I, mean, I think it's, yeah, I mean, it's already turned pink and could turn red. Just the way that a bunch of, you know, he mentioned Cambodia, for example, has already 
I, I would say Cambodia is almost completely turned red at this point. I mean, I think that there's just this, like, we just don't want to look at the possible worst case scenario. Like, it's a human thing, right? Like, we just don't want to think about, like, the worst thing that could happen uh, and prepare for it. Like, he was talking about the civil defense thing, even within Taiwan, like, there should be drills for what to do if there is an invasion, this kind of stuff, because nobody really wants to, because then you're really saying, well, there could be an invasion. Mm -hmm. A Uh, lot of people could die. Remember when Sandy hit New York? Mm -hmm. Like, I think there was just like a lot of denial that like there could be a hurricane here because... Uh, yeah, like it's it's so it's it's, it's New very York. Rare. You can't yeah, mess with us. Well, so I remember filling the bathtub in my apartment the night before, like the when the storm was hitting. It was just like this probably won't actually affect me, but just in case. And then I lost water for the next week. Oh, so that was good. So that was actually good. But like I I remember talking to somebody who, um, she's a scientist and she talks about disaster preparedness a lot, and she was saying. That, you know, it usually takes like nine or ten times of her talking to her friends before they start doing anything like assembling a first aid kit or, oh, you know, wow. so like. And after that conversation, did you assemble a first aid kit? No, but I thought about it. Ah, <laughs> ah. Well, at Case least there's fun. that. Yeah, no, but like, like yeah, that's exactly like there's the thing where I'm like, I need a go bag, but have I put together a go bag? Mm-hmm. No. Yeah. But yeah, this is this is absolutely critical. Like the Chinese Communist Party for decades has been waging unrestricted warfare against the rest of the world. Uh, the U.S. is in a unique position now to be able to stop the rise of the Chinese Communist Party and the uh, horrible effect that would have globally. China taking over international institutions. I know it's already very, very bad. Yes. Uh, but if we allow the Chinese Communist Party to conquer Taiwan, then it's no longer the U.S. has an ability. It's 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 we would be much more. It would be on the basically level what, what Xi Jinping said. The West would be in decline and China would be rising. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's very. But like, again, I think we're all caught up in this like post-war World War Two thing where like that's never going to happen again. We're, we're never beyond that. We're not going to have. Yeah. We're like in a post, you know, we're like in a new world order where it's like never we're never going to get into another world war. We the have Chinese the Chinese Communist Party isn't really communist. Communism has never been tried. Well, I mean, well, I think especially after the Cold War mm-hmm. thing that it was like, well, that because like World War Two was like okay we're never gonna have another World War and then the Cold War happened and we're like all right we're never gonna have another one of those either oh yeah and we're already in one yeah so it's definitely happening but we're like well you know but 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 this time the Soviet Union has money that yeah. we gave them and know? a bunch of supporters well like the Soviet Union had a bunch of supporters in the U S as well but more so now uh, yeah I don't know I think it'd be interesting to talk to a historian who's more you know, versed in that time period because we were pretty much not alive or very young during the Cold War. So Mm. I I remember my mom telling me that the Soviet Union had fallen. And I remember how big a deal it was for her. And I did not understand at all. Just didn't care. But, you know, I was like seven. So, you know, it's I think like my mom remembers the the duck and cover drills, which let's be honest, were not effective uh, at preventing nuclear fallout. But what they did do is remind everybody that like there's a real threat. I'm not advocating for duck and cover drills. I'm not. I'm just saying that there was a there was a greater public awareness 
you know, between 1950 and 1991 of this I would threat. say by the 90s, like... Once we built the McDonald's in Moscow. Well, I don't think that any of us were really alive during the, the height of, like, the Cold War, like... The Cuban like Missile the, Crisis. The yeah, stuff, yeah. Yeah, like, I mean, sure, the Soviet Union was still around in 1990, but, like... Well, you joke about duck and cover, but that is exactly what people in Taiwan should be doing. It's likely there won't be a nuclear strike on Taiwan, but it's very likely Taipei is going to absorb a lot of missiles. Ducking and cover could actually save lives. They need to be prepared for what the Communist Party has been promising for decades, an invasion. Or, you know, they could just give up now. Or they could give up now. It would be so much easier to just give up now, right? That's that's a real risk. I mean, I think that's basically where it was headed under the previous uh, KMT administration. Like, Mind Joe's whole, like, we are going to, you know, have e an economic agreement with China and we're going to, you know, it was definitely going towards the whole, like, we'll just eventually kind of capitulate and have like a one country, two systems kind of thing. Yeah. Hong it's, Kong ruined it's, it's that. Easy. Yeah. All you got to do is look at Hong Kong and go, <laughs> la, 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 la. Well, problem is solved at the time. But, you know, the whole tur turnaround of that was the sunflower movement in Taiwan where yeah. the students like occupied the legislature because they were like, we do not want this economic trade deal with with the PRC. So, you know, Grant was great at analogies, but that's one thing he missed out when he's talking about the U.S. saying, oh, Taiwan, you're our best gal. But uh, we got this scary, scary lady down the street. He missed the part where our best gal and that scary lady might just ditch us and get together. Oh, wow. That's a, that's definitely a post-1950 spin on it. <laughs> <laughs> and this is the kind of quality you co content you get from China Unscripted. As we hold up a China Uncensored mug. Oh, we should get China Unscripted mugs. Yeah, they're on the way. Oh, cool. The mugs? The mugs. Wow. And we may even make them available to viewers at, at some point. Fantastic. For all five people who watch this that would buy that. There's at least seven or eight people. Okay. Anyways, thank you for watching China Unscripted. And once again, I'm Chris Chappell. I'm Shelley Zhang. And I'm Matt Ganesta. We'll talk to you next time.